Let's turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to finish Acts chapter 19 today. It feels like we've been there for a while. Let's begin by reading the first two verses of this section, 21 and 22 of chapter 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. After these events, we looked at that last time. This is when Paul has been in Ephesus for three years, or he would be there in total three years on his third missionary journey. And we saw that the church received acceptance in Ephesus like they didn't receive it anywhere else, except for maybe Berea. That the Christians were respected in the city, that Paul was lecturing daily in the hall of Tyrannus. People were coming in and spending hours listening to him teach. And we saw the sons of Sceva, the Jewish exorcists, who tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon, but the demon beat him to a pulp <laughs> and said, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? And after that, all of those in the church who had been disciples of Christ, but were still holding on to their magical books and their magical spells and their lucky charms, they brought all of that and burned it. And it said it was about 50,000 silver coins worth of books that they burned. So we were seeing those extraordinary miracles, as Luke put it. Paul was having his sweatbands and his aprons stolen, and they would lay the sweatband Paul had used on their sick mother or their sick daughter, and they would recover. Or the demon would come out of somebody just by touching Paul's apron. And Luke made the point, this was not normal, <laughs> but it was extraordinary. The Lord was doing amazing things in Ephesus. And we see now, in verse 21... And that Paul is preparing to leave Ephesus for Jerusalem. He's been there three years. And he's got a plan that along the way he wants to stop at the other churches in Achaia and Macedonia. You remember he began his third journey by going through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, the churches in Galatia. The churches in Achaia would have been Athens and would have been Corinth. And the churches in Macedonia would have been Berea, Philippi, and Thessalonica from his second journey. So Paul is wanting to go back and visit all those churches on his way to Jerusalem. We know from his epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians especially, that at this time Paul was taking a collection from all of the churches he had planted to take to Jerusalem as a gift to the Jewish Christians there. This is going to come back later when Paul is in Jerusalem because there was still tension between the Jewish church and the Gentile church, especially in Jerusalem where there was a very strong Jewish presence. So Paul is doing this as an act of goodwill to help bridge the divide. Even though theologically it was broken down, practically there were still some issues to get over. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul talks a lot about it. But let me read here from 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4. He's laying out the plan here. Coming to the end of this book, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch, and Pisidia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Isn't that cool? Paul's like, have it ready so that I don't have to stand up and start begging for money. Paul didn't want to do that. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So he's telling them, hey, I'm going to be coming back to Corinth. And when I do, I'm going to be taking that collection so that I can go back to Jerusalem. And he's telling them to have it ready, have some people that you trust to take care of it and handle it so that we can just go. Paul was not interested, as he says in 2 Corinthians, in haggling with people or beating them over the brow for money. He says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is why I'm doing it. So if you're going to do something, please have it ready. This is probably why Paul sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him into Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, probably taking maybe notice, hey, Paul's going to be coming, or maybe they were doing the collection themselves. We just know that all that was going on around this time. little note about Erastus, by the way. In Romans 16.23, he references Erastus as the city treasurer. So it could be that Erastus was the city treasurer of Ephesus here. We know from this passage and others that Paul was making friends and making connections that were in the local government and that were well off and, and that sort of thing. So pretty cool how the gospel has affected even that. It also makes sense that if they're going out for a financial reason, bringing the city treasurer with you, somebody who knows what he's doing, makes an awful lot of sense, doesn't it? And you can also see here Paul's desire to visit Rome, which of course was the capital of the world at that point. And we know that this is when, this around this time here, is when Paul would have written the epistle to the Romans. I've tried to draw this out for you as much as I've been able to going through the book of Acts of when we think Paul wrote these letters. But it's pretty clear that when Paul was gearing up to leave Ephesus was when he wrote Romans because he really wanted to go there. You can read it in that whole epistle about how much he wants to come visit them. He knew Priscilla and Aquila, who were from Rome, so he had some connection there, and he wanted to go back. But this time he wasn't going to go, which is part of the reason he wrote Romans in the first place. He wanted to write them a letter that introduced himself and ministered to them, even though he hadn't made any personal connection yet, which is why if you read Romans, it's much more general. He's not addressing specific issues. You know, like in Philippians, he's telling two women, you guys need to get along and stop fighting so much. <laughs> you don't see that in Romans. It's much more systematic, which is why it's, it's considered one of the most theological books of the New Testament, because Paul was just wanting to lay out the gospel as clear as possible. At the end of Romans, we read this here, Romans 15, 23 through 29. Imagine him writing this from Ephesus. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Listen up. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So can you see how all these books of the Bible are connected? That this is real. This was happening. This wasn't made up. That in the book of Acts, it says he's getting ready to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then come back to Jerusalem, 
We know from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, along the way, he's taking up a collection for the saints there, which will be referenced later in the book of Acts. And in Romans, he writes to Romans, says, I'd love to come now, but I've got this ministry thing I'm working on. When that's over, I'm going to come see you. So very cool how it all fits together, I think. But the point that I want us to grasp this morning is that Ephesus, the ministry there, is going well. As opposed to some of these other cities where Paul got beaten and ridden out on a rail and chucked out of the city. He's been there for years. He's got a team now. He's organizing big projects. He's making plans down the road. They're seeing extraordinary miracles. But the enemy, as you know, is not going to take all that lying down, is he? Let me give you an illustration. In December 1944, during World War II, the German army was on its heels. They had formerly been the terror of the world. Their army was conquering everybody, but now they were beaten back. They were on the ropes. They had a major offensive into Russia that failed because the Russian winter froze the Nazi army and they had to retreat. There were tank forces under General Montgomery, General Patton, that had driven them out of North Africa. They'd gone into Italy. Now Italy had switched sides and was fighting for the Allies. And British and American forces had successfully liberated Paris after the D-Day invasion. That was the big moment for Hitler when everybody thought, okay, he's going to win it all, when he had conquered Paris and driven the British forces out of France. Well, now even France is taken away from him, and they're marching towards Berlin. So in his last effort, Hitler ordered one final offensive through the Ardennes Forest in Belgium. His thought was, I'm going to break through the Allied lines, I'm going to separate the forces, and I'm going to force a surrender. I won't get everything that I wanted, but at least we can stop fighting and I can turn around and face Russia again. Because they had advanced so quickly, the Allies were spread thin, the, the troops were exhausted, and they were poorly supplied. They couldn't have air support because the winter snows in Belgium were so bad. Remember, this is December, right there in northern Europe. And the German army advanced and pushed the lines farther and farther and farther back, resulting in what we call the Battle of the Bulge. We call it that because the line, which was a straight line, was bulging outward, if you look at it. That's where they were being pushed back through the forest. And it was only the, the tenacity of a couple units of soldiers, most famously the 101st Airborne Division, who held the line. They weren't advancing. They weren't moving forward. They're, that was out of the question. All they could do was hold the line until eventually General Patton could arrive with his tanks and reinforce them. And because they were able to hold that line, this was widely considered to be the final turning point of the war in Europe. The Nazis never launched another offensive after this. And I see that as an illustration of what we're going to see in this passage today. When you start seeing success in your spiritual life, whether that's personally, you overcome some sin, or you're finally getting the discipline down, your attitude has been good for a long time, or whether it's as a church, the church is growing, the ministry is expanding, like here with Paul. When that happens, when you start seeing success, the devil always prepares a counteroffensive to try to break you before you break through to the other side. It's that last-ditch effort that he has throwing everything he's got at you to try and stop the advance of your spiritual growth. You've seen this before. You hit a point where maybe it's just your luck changes. 
Nothing has changed spiritually, but everything around you just stops working. You, you get a bill that's mailed to you late, and now they're charging you late fees. You get in a car accident, and now you're going to have to repair that. Somebody calls you, and they need money. Just, things just start to not go well. You get passed up for a promotion at work. Maybe there's a friend who betrays you. Everything's going great, and all of a sudden, you have some friend that does something that totally severs the relationship, and it breaks your heart. Maybe it's just this one. Your interest just totally wanes. You ever be doing great with Jesus, and you're reading your Bible, and you're praying, and you're so excited, and you wake up one morning, and you just have zero motivation to do any of that stuff? I know I've experienced that before. Or maybe you suffer a massive failure. You're doing great, you're doing great for 40 days in a row, and then on day 41, bam, you fall right back into the same thing, and you mess up big time. All of that. They're counteroffensives from the enemy. He knows you're growing, he knows you're advancing, and he wants to stop it, so he throws one big punch. And how you respond to those situations is going to determine your future as a disciple of Christ. It's possible to bounce back from those things. It's possible to overcome them and move forward, but it's better to be prepared for them and ready for them when they come so that you don't get knocked down in the first place. So we're going to learn from the example of the church in Ephesus here. And I hope that it applies to your life too. Verse 23, now down to verse 27. So things are going well. Ministry's expanding. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The church back then was called the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now remember, we saw last week the church burned all of their magical books. That was big business in Ephesus. We talked about that. I'm not going to get into it again. That something called an Ephesian script was what they called a, a magic book or a scroll of incantation. It was a big deal in Ephesus. And the church realized they couldn't do that and follow Jesus. And so those in the church that had been holding those things back brought them all together. And there was a very public revival among magicians. One of the more interesting revivals the world has ever had, huh? The magician's revival. But now you're going to see the counteroffensive. This silversmith named Demetrius was losing money because the gospel had spread throughout Ephesus so much, nobody was buying his idols anymore. And he references here Artemis, the goddess Artemis. You remember last week we discussed the temple of Artemis. We've got an artist rendition of that here. This was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. You maybe have seen pictures of the Parthenon in Athens, right? This was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was 425 feet by 225 feet. Those pillars were 60 feet tall. People would travel from around the whole world to come see this. And there's something else I want to point out, too. When we think of these ancient buildings and these ancient ruins, we always think of them like they look now. 
The castles are always like gray and brown and dirty brick, and the statues from Greece and Rome and the building, they're always just that pure white marble. Don't think of it like that. This would have been the most colorful, beautiful thing any of these people had ever seen. It would have been painted. There would have been tapestries. It would have been well lit. They had this immense statue in the middle and the priests and the priestesses walking around and there was music. It was magnificent to look at. Folks would travel around the world for something called the Artemision, which was the yearly festival for the goddess Artemis. And the priestesses, who I discussed were really much closer to prostitutes than anything else, would be out in the streets and there would be a big party and the priests and the male priests of Artemis were castrated and were made eunuchs in order to serve her. And they were the ones that carried the statue around and everybody followed it and celebrated it. And it was a big deal. But the worship of Artemis was not only cultural, it was big business. The temple was the largest financial institution in Asia. By Asia, remember, we're not talking about the continent. We're talking about the Roman province. That's Turkey. Modern-day Turkey is the closest thing to that. In that province, the temple of Artemis was the bank. They didn't have banks like we think about them today. If you wanted money, if you wanted to borrow money, if you wanted to invest money, if you wanted to exchange money, you went to the temple. So it was much more than just a place of worship. It was a big cultural center. It was a financial center. And those little shrines that men like Demetrius made, which were replicas of the big one that they had in the, in the temple, they were big, dependable money makers. Because every tourist that comes into town to see the temple of Artemis is going to want to buy a little silver shrine. And they made a lot of money off of that. Ephesus was a huge city. It was a big trade port. So there was always folks coming in. And that was their little souvenir. I went to Ephesus and saw the temple of Artemis. But now the gospel has come in. And the gospel has spread throughout the city so much that even with that amazing feat of engineering and architecture and culture, the idol makers are losing money because nobody's buying idols anymore. John Polhill, who's a commentator, he said, the gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. Ain't that the truth? Demetrius had put up with these Christians. What did he care? He probably wasn't too religious himself. You can see right here he's manipulating these guys to, oh, we don't want Artemis to go under. He doesn't care about Artemis. He cares about his bottom line. Christians are meeting in the synagogue. Who cares? Let the Jews do what the Jews are going to do. They don't, they don't buy idols anyway. Now they're moving into the Hall of Tyrannus. Okay, so they're gaining some publicity. Okay, well, that's weird. Erastus has become a Christian. That's very strange. Okay, now all these Christians aren't buying idols. Now they're burning their magic books. This is getting out of hand. And then the quarterly statement comes in, and it doesn't look good. So he gathers all the guilds together, the silversmiths and the idol makers, and he says, we're going to make trouble. He doesn't say it, but you see what he's doing. He's stirring up the crowd. He's, he's being a demagogue for these people. What's going to happen? We're not going to make any money, and, and then no one's going to want to buy idols, and then no one's going to worship Artemis anymore, and then the city will fall apart, and the culture will be destroyed, and there will be nothing left. A little overdramatic, isn't it? But he's going to get exactly what he wants. We're going to see in the next passage here. This is the kind of conflict that Christians should expect from the world and with the world. You've got two schools here that neither one of them is really great. One of them says we should never be in conflict with the world. Didn't Jesus say, love your neighbors and be at peace with all men? So if the world doesn't like something about you, you've got to change so that they like you. 
If somebody writes an op-ed in some newspaper that says the church is not loving, we've got to fix it so that way everyone thinks we're loving. Well, that, that road is called compromise, and it's not good. That's how you end up looking just like the world and wondering why nobody bothers coming to church anymore. But then you've got this other side that says the church should always be in conflict with the world. And that if the church is not in conflict with the world, there's something wrong. Didn't Jesus say, beware of all men when they speak well of you? Well, yes, he did. But there are folks that their job is to get out there and pick fights. And, and they are determining what they're going to do and believe by what the world says. Well, if they don't like this, then we're going to do that. And if they don't like these people, we're going to be on their team. And if they don't like this, we're going to be over there. And it's, it's belligerence and it's anger. And it's, it's not scriptural either. Paul did say, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't be pugnacious is the word. Don't get out there spoiling for a fight. But at the same time, we can't commit ourselves to the world so much that when we disagree that we're going to capitulate. Like all the people that came to follow Jesus and it said Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew. Jesus was too smart to bank everything on the crowds. The kind of conflict we should expect is when the gospel is working in people's lives and it starts to interfere with people who are dependent upon the sin that we're eradicating. For example, during the Second Great Awakening, when Charles Finney used to come to town, the revivals would be so powerful that the bars and the brothels would close. They would just be shut down. No one, could, no one was going in anymore, so no one could make any money off of it anymore. And there's countless stories of bartenders or bar owners who were sitting at their bar, wondering why nobody was coming, finding out they're all down at the revival meeting. They get angry. I'm going to go give that Charles Finney a piece of my mind, walking in and getting saved in the moment. There was no concerted effort to shut these things down. There was no plan. There was no strategy. They were just preaching the gospel, and the alcoholics weren't going there anymore, and people weren't going to visit prostitutes anymore because the gospel was working on their hearts. That's the kind of conflict we should expect, that when the church is effective, the world can't make money off of us anymore, or it affects the way that the world views itself. We're going to talk about some of these things in a second here. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 4. Tell me if you can relate to this. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to that, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You ever see that in your own life? Jesus gets hold of you and you start changing the way you live your life and everybody's surprised? What do you mean you're not coming? I'm not coming. I don't do that anymore. What's wrong with you? Okay, it's kind of weird. And before too long, it's like, okay, he's being weird today. When you realize it's been a few weeks, now it, it turns from mockery and kind of indifference to being malicious and maligning you and hating on you. I know I've seen that before. When the changes that Jesus is making in your life are mystifying to your friends. And there can be conflict there. Because if all the guys say, hey, we're going to the strip club after work, and you say, no, I'm not going... What are you doing? You are demonstrating that you are capable of obeying your conscience and obeying the Lord. And that, without a word, casts judgment on them. Because that shows them that who, who's really in control here? If they've been justifying things by saying, well, everyone does it, and here you are not doing it, and maybe even they consider themselves a Christian, but they figure, oh, there's, there's no way I can not do this or not do that, and you're over there doing it, it challenges their heart. And you can see people get angry over that. And it can lead to conflict. 
We see in this passage three ways that the gospel affected the lives of these people in Ephesus. Number one, it affected their philosophy. See what he says? Paul has been preaching that gods made with hands are not gods. The very idea. (laughs) It seems ridiculous to us to read that. We always love to give way too much slack to these ancient cultures or even other cultures and say, they didn't really believe that the idol was God. Yeah, they did. People tell me that. I tell them that I've been to Nepal, and I've seen people bowing down to these. Well, they don't really believe that they're gods. Yeah, they do. Because we think it's so ridiculous to worship an idol, we think it's offensive to accuse anybody of believing that. But that is straight up what they believed. That's just the effect of the gospel in our culture for hundreds of years. The gospel challenges our philosophy, the way we think. You cannot believe all the same things you believe and be a Christian. The gospel will change you. Even your deeply held beliefs, your cultural ideas will be filtered through the scriptures. And let's just use that as an example of of idolatry. Everybody in the world worshipped idols, except the Jews and then the Christians. And it was offensive. The thought of saying, you think I'm just worshipping some rock? How dare you say that about me? I'm an intelligent Roman. I'm smart. I'm successful. I've got a business. I've got a family. I'm wise. I'm more self-controlled than you are. How dare you say that about me? Now, the church couldn't then go, well, I mean, as long as they're good people, if they worship an idol, it's really okay. No, you can't do that because the gospel would affect the way they think. And that was going to lead to inevitable conflict. In our culture, what we believe about sin is very different from what the world believes about sin. And we can't change it, even though it will lead to conflict with people. Number two, it affected their finances. We already hit on this some. They weren't making money anymore. I think that is so cool that the church, without launching an anti-idolatry campaign, just by being the church, had completely begun to change the way Ephesus went about its religion. Can you believe that? But Demetrius here was concerned about the financial ramifications. Hey, the gospel will hit your wallet. Don't don't think that it won't. And if it hasn't, you should go home and pray about it. Because Jesus taught us. Remember all those passages in Luke where he kept on talking about how money should not be a thing for us? That we don't live for today. We don't live for the money. That you should be willing to give it away. He says if you're going to use your money, use it to invest in spiritual riches in heaven. That we should be generous. That we should be free from our money. That we should never be bound to anything that we own. And as an example, as a Christian, we tend to steer away from frivolous things. Because when we're walking with the Lord and we're walking closely, we start to realize that my life is worth living and there are things that are worth my time and worth my attention and worth my love. And frivolous stuff just starts to go by the wayside. And I've found in my life, little subscriptions start to get canceled. And little things like that, I don't need to go there anymore. I don't need to buy that. I don't need to go out there. I really shouldn't be eating that much because the Bible says that I shouldn't be mastered by my belly. And all of a sudden, you're like, hey, I have money now. (laughs) Well, what am I going to do with it? Who needs it? Who else needs this? Because I don't need this much. And when the Lord teaches you to be content, you start to realize, okay, I make this much, but I really only need this much. So what are we going to do with the rest of this? It affects your wallet. It affects your finances. And number three, it affected their reputation. He was concerned that the great goddess Artemis should be counted as nothing. Guess what, Demetrius? It's 2020, and she is counted as nothing. That happened. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. Yeah, she was. 
He was worried about his city's reputation. The gospel begins changing people by tearing down who they used to be and building them up into something different. You are going to see your reputation change when you start to follow Jesus. Maybe even the thing that you've used to define yourself, your defining characteristic, the party guy. Oh, not not anymore, he's not. People are going to maybe drift away from you because you're not who you used to be. Maybe they were only around you for certain things. You could give them a good time. You were a sympathetic ear when they wanted to gossip, or you gave them the inside track on certain business things, and you're not going to do that anymore, and they drift away. Have you ever found that the closer you walk with Jesus, the fewer invitations you get to go to things? I found that, and it breaks your heart for a while until you watch it go on for a little while, and then you realize, you know what? I think it's for the best, isn't it? Philosophy, finances, reputation. The gospel does not just change people, but it changes entire cultures. And not everyone's going to like it. We just need to know that. If we think that the world being upset with us is something we've got to fix, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I've seen guys that will come in and brandishing statistics. Do you know what the world thinks about us? And they run through this long list of things that we can't change. (laughs) They think we're intolerant because we only believe in one God. Well, yeah, that's not going to change, buddy. If they don't like it, that's up to them because we can't compromise on that. But folks will take those things and, well, the world says we're not loving. Well, how does the world define love? Because we define love in a very specific way. We know what we mean when we say that. They say, well, we've got to change things until they think we're loving. Well, if their definition of love is in opposition to our definition of love, then no, we don't want them to think that we're like that. And we, we start chasing statistics instead of chasing down the word of God. Let me tell you a story. In the early Christian church, like the, around the 200 year, there was a church father named Tertullian. And he was asked by, actually by a silversmith who made idols, just like Demetrius. Became a Christian, and he's like, well, listen, I've, I've trained to do this. This is how I've made my money. Is it all right for me to keep making idols even though I myself am not going to worship them? And Tertullian told him, absolutely not. You're not going to be providing people with an opportunity to sin. You can't do that. And the man said to him, what can I do? It is my living, and I must live. And Tertullian responded by saying, must you live? Isn't that something? Must you live? Well, if I, don't, I can't make money, and I won't be able to live, and I might die. And better that than to give all these other people an opportunity of idolatry by your own hand. I remember being horrified when I was in college, because there was a friend of mine that I believe is a Christian. She's now renounced the Lord, but I should have seen it coming. But she was going through her graphic design class, and she said they had a a study on ethics in graphic design. It was a Christian university. And she said, I'm fine making graphics for anybody. I'll, I'll make graphics for a strip club. I don't care. I'll make graphics for anybody, because it's not like I'm the one doing it, and I'm not responsible for it. And they were trying to tell me that if I made it more attractive for somebody to go in there, don't I bear some kind of responsibility? And she just couldn't believe it. Like, this is just ridiculous. not the way the world works. When you follow Jesus, it affects everything. You can't live the way you used to live. And he said, well, that's going to change the way I live. Okay. Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and come and follow me. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Let me put that in really basic English. Don't be like everyone else. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've got to think differently. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a good filter. The thing you're about to do, is it good, acceptable, and perfect? If not, maybe give this one a pass. That gives me a really narrow list of things to do. All right, great. Now you'll have all that time to pray and read your Bible like you've been complaining about for the last several years. If only I had the time. Demetrius, though, he was hitched to the wickedness of Ephesus. He made his living based on people doing wicked things, and the church was changing that. So he rounds up a posse to make trouble, and they're going to launch that satanic counteroffensive. Let's read verses 28 through 34. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the reaction. They begin to shout and basically to riot in the streets here. And they're drawing a crowd after them to the theater. This theater is still in existence. And can we put that picture up there? That is the Ephesian theater. It could hold 24,000 people. When you came in on the dock, there was a long road that had colonnades on either side that led directly to that theater. So, this mob grabs Gaius and Aristarchus and dragged them and probably put them right here in the center where everyone could see them. And this thing would have just been full of people hollering and screaming and yelling and shouting at these Christians. Gaius and Aristarchus. Gaius was a very common name. We're going to read next week of a guy named Gaius of Derby, But Derby was not in Macedonia, so maybe this is a different Gaius. And Aristarchus, we know from next chapter, was from Thessalonica. But we're going to discuss a lot more about these guys next week when it gives us a list of all of Paul's traveling companions. Aristarchus in particular. Go home and, and look his name up in a concordance. He's in a lot of Paul's epistles. So these were Paul's guys. And they've been dragged before what's called the demos. The demos was the crowd or the assembly. Some of the words in this passage that are translated that way are demos. It was very similar to a town hall. The, the way they did government is that the people as a whole had a right to determine certain matters. So it seems like what they're trying to do is basically have a citizen's arrest and probably were intending to put these guys to death. But really what you have here is not so much a grand jury as much as a circus. Most of the people don't even know why they're there. They just know that something's going on at the theater. Let's go. Let's go see what it is. And Paul wants to go in. I can picture maybe, maybe Paul's out here somewhere. I don't know. He's wanting to come in the door. I'm going to go talk to him. Because they're, they're going to sentence Aristarchus to death. And all of Paul's disciples are grabbing him. You're not going anywhere. They know who you are. You go in there, those people will tear you to pieces. Paul's like, I don't care. I've been stoned to death before, and God brought me back. And you're not going in there, Paul. We're not doing this. And it says some of the Asiarchs, which you can see that Asia and Ark. Ark means ruler or leader. Asia is the province they're in. So some of the government officials that Paul knew, 
Find out that Paul wants to come in. And they're passing notes. Tell Paul, do not come in here. They're going to rip you to pieces. I could talk about this a lot, but sometimes prudence trumps bravery in the service of the Lord. It would have been very brave for Paul to run in there, but wouldn't have been very prudent. Well, what they do is they put forward this Jew named Alexander. Because remember, this whole thing is over idolatry. And they're accusing these people of corrupting the city and ruining the idol trade. And they bring up this guy named Alexander, and it says he tries to make a defense. What is probably going to happen, he's not going to defend the Christians. He's probably going to say something along the lines of, hey, we're Jews. Please don't lump us in with those people. Because remember, there was a break between Paul and the synagogue earlier, and Paul's been preaching in the hall of Tyrannus rather than in the synagogue. But he stands up, and they see that he's a Jew. What's the point? Do they hate Jews? Not so much. It's more that there's another guy that doesn't believe in the goddess Artemis. And so they begin to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. It's called foaming at the mouth is what that is. And this is Satan's ploy here. He's trying to rile the crowd in order to intimidate Paul and the church. The devil is no gentleman. You know that, don't you? Way too many movies show him in like a nice suit with his hair slicked back. He's a schemer. He's a liar. And you know what he is, as you can see in this passage? He's a spoiled brat. If he can't overcome you with reason, if he can't overcome you with temptation, he'll just pitch a little hissy fit. Fine, if they don't want to listen to to me in Ephesus, we're just going to have them scream for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. You ever have a kid? Well, you obviously would never have had kids like this. Have you ever seen a child in the supermarket that goes by the cereal aisle? I don't know what it is about the cereal aisle, man. But those those people that put the the bright-colored sugary ones on the bottom, they're going to stand before God and answer for that. When those kids just, I mean, they just, uh, and they, they jump, and then they flop on the ground, and then you ever, you ever see a kid hold its breath, hold their breath, and their face start turning blue until they get what they want? Here's a little biblical parenting tip. It, don't ever let your kid get away with that. But this is what they're doing. I, fine, if you won't leave our city, then we're just going to scream until you stop talking. The devil will try to pitch a fit. He will scream, he'll kick his legs, he'll bang his head against the wall until we finally just give in out of annoyance. This reminds me of Jonah. Remember in Jonah chapter 4, when Jonah finally gets spit out of the fish, shows up to Nineveh, preaches, and all the people repent. And Noah gets mad. I knew it. I knew you would do this. That's why I didn't want to preach God, because I knew you were gracious and that you would forgive them. And now look at this. Now Nineveh's around. Now they're going to be around for a long time. He leaves. He goes up on the cliff, and he's pouting and looking down at this thing. God sends a plant to cover him up under the hot sun. And Jonah's very happy about that. Then in the night, God sends a worm to eat the plant. And Jonah starts to pray that God will strike him dead. Jonah 4, 8, and 9. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Yeah, just like Billy Graham after his his big events, right? Let me die. This is the worst day of my life. If I had 100,000 people get saved in one day, I might be happy about it. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. That's a hissy fit. 
That is a spiritual tantrum he's throwing. Because their enemies, the Assyrians, the oppressors, the ones that had Israel under their thumb, the, the ones that would torture people, God gave them relief. So I could have been the prophet to come home and say, God has destroyed our enemies. Now I've got to go home and say, God has saved our enemies to oppress us another day. But he gets all sad and grumpy when the plant dies. God's like, you're more upset about the plant dying than about that giant city over there full of animals and full of people. You can set your watch by it. When you discipline yourself to serve the Lord, you will hit a wall. It inevitably happens because this is a battle. It's not just a nice jog around the track. It's a fight. You hit the wall. And most of the time, that wall is something petty and childish to try to get you to go back to your old ways. The Ephesians did not want to have a debate. They did not want to listen to reason. They did not want to show up to the hall of Tyrannus and have a discussion with Paul about idolatry. They wanted to win. So they shouted for two hours like little kids in the cereal aisle. It's petty. It's childish. And you know, this is, this is a very effective technique that Satan has. More ministries split up and crash over stupid personality disputes than over anything substantive. If you ever see a ministry crumble and like two different charismatic leaders are going to go their own way, it's always over something stupid. They always try to cloak it in something spiritual, but it really boils down to, well, everybody knows his name and they don't know my name. And I do a lot of work around here and I don't get any credit for it. Or I wanted to go into that country and he wanted to go into that country and he always gets his way, so I'm going to leave. And I'm like, it's like, this is so dumb. Isn't the thing you were doing more important than that? More marriages fall apart over petty little complaints. A lot of marriage counseling comes in and it really boils down to, she bugs me. He annoys me. And there are people that will let that wreck their whole marriage over silly stuff. I feel like I've seen more people overcome the big, heavy, serious stuff than are able to overcome the little things. Folks leave churches over very childish reasons. I'm sure you've seen some of this in your life. I could run down a long list. We had a we had a gentleman leave the church back in Virginia because we had a, a slide, like on the projector, that said, coffee available in the lobby. And on the picture, there was a coffee and there was a donut. We did not offer donuts in the lobby. See where I'm going with this? You're getting ahead of me. All we had was a coffee. But the slide said, coffee is available in the lobby. He went out into the lobby. There were no donuts. And he was very angry because it was false advertising. We were deceiving people in the house of God. We were telling people they had donuts and taking it away from them. And he left the church. That was not his first time visiting. He should have known better. He left the church. I've had people leave because we've asked them to put a lid on their coffee cup. Hey, we got new chairs. Would you mind putting a lid on that coffee? I'm leaving. Never had to put up with something like this in my entire life. When you find yourself talking about what you've earned in your spiritual walk or what you deserve, that's childish. When the Spirit speaks to you and you stick your hands over your ears and you say, la, 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 I know, I know, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know that I shouldn't be eating like this because it's, I'm treating food like an alcoholic treats a drink. But you know what? I'm hungry and I want it anyway, so shut up, Holy Spirit. I'm going to do it my way. 
Or, I know that I shouldn't be this lazy, but I'm going to because I feel like it. Or, I know I shouldn't be flying off the handle, but I've been keeping it under control for way too long, and they're giving me an opportunity, so I'm going to start screaming in the Walmart checkout line. It's petty. It's childish. It's little kid stuff. Or you know what the devil will do? He'll poke someone else in your life to start acting childish towards you. And then you're tempted to respond childish to them. Well, yeah, well, you smell funny. It's a spiritual tantrum. Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 14. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You've got to learn to recognize this for what it is. If if you are having a, a strong desire to do something, examine your motives that discernment that you've trained by constant practice. Am I doing this because it's something that I want or that the Lord wants, or is it manipulation on a spiritual level? Is this a spiritual tantrum? I also hope you can learn not to engage with people on that level, like Paul's friends encouraged him to do. You know somebody that's living like that, that's the kind of conversation they want to have, is like a slap fight back and forth with words about Jesus. It's not worth engaging. Proverbs tells us not to answer a fool according to his folly. Sandy Adams always puts it this way. He's a pastor in Atlanta. He said, a dog can lick a skunk, but is it really worth it? (laughs) You may be in one of those situations. What Paul was in here, was he going to gain anything? Was he going to change a single person's mind going into that arena? Probably not. It would have been better to sit back and pray. And that's exactly what the Lord is going to do. He's going to take care of them even though they didn't have to do a thing. Verse 35 to the end here. And when the town clerk quieted the crowd... He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Remember, this was their attempt to get the assembly together, but it was, it was a mob more than anything else. So he's like, you can come on the normal day, not just rallying everybody together. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. As surprising as this situation might seem, especially after all the other things Paul's gone through, the situation just fizzled. The town clerk was able to come in and calm things down. You can see the providence of God at work here, right? The Lord is just going to work it out. Town clerk, that word is grammateus. It's actually often translated scribe. The idea is he was like a city manager. He handled all the papers, all the things that got written down, records, accounting, that kind of thing. So he had some clout. And he tries to butter these people up. Do you see that at the beginning? talking up the city of Ephesus. He talks about, it says, the stone that fell from the sky. This is a diapetes. They believed that the idol in their big temple had fallen from the sky and Zeus had given it to them, perfectly formed. And it was all those little mini 
versions of it is what Demetrius was selling. So that's what he's referencing there. But he points out the Jews and the Christians had done nothing wrong. And if Demetrius didn't like it, he could take them to court. And he says, we're in danger of being in trouble for rioting. Ephesus was a free city. By that it means they had some form of self-government, but they were still under the authority of the Roman Empire. So he's saying, listen, you guys, we have a lot of privileges to rule ourselves here. But if you're going to keep doing stuff like this, Rome is going to step in and you're going to start seeing soldiers marching through the street. Is that really what you guys want? The status like that of a free city was often contingent on, are you able to keep the peace without us? This is very interesting how the Lord uses outside circumstances to bring about his will for his people. Very similar to what Gamaliel said. Remember back in chapter 5, he said, look, leave the Christians alone. If God is doing this, then we can't stop it. If he's not doing it, then it's going to fall to pieces. There's many times in the book of Acts where we see public officials coming to the conclusion that the church is no threat to society. It's possible that Luke was writing that because the church was starting to face persecution and he was trying to get it out there that, hey, look, the proconsul here and the town clerk here and this guy over there, they all agreed that this wasn't a threat to the public peace. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, coming to a close here. It says, first of all then... Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, we all know the Bible says pray for the king. But do you know what we're supposed to pray for? Finish that verse with me. Pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Translation, Paul says, pray for the king and the governor and the mayor and everybody else that they would just Leave us alone. Best case scenario, according to the Bible, is that the government just leaves the church alone so that we can calmly, simply, and quietly do the work that God has given for us to do. There are always those in the church, even today, who want to solicit government help to get the church's goals accomplished. That is never a good idea. Even if the government today is sympathetic to the church there's no guarantee that the government in five minutes is going to be sympathetic to the church and if we've already laid down this precedent that the government is allowed to meddle in the church's business you get a situation like you had in germany going back to world war ii where hitler as the chancellor of germany had authority over the church of germany and that's when he began to introduce all of his pagan stuff and men like dietrich bonhoeffer had to split off and form what they called the confessing church because it was the only church that actually confessed that Jesus was Lord. This is why Christians historically have been advocates of religious freedom, the Puritans and the like, because they came out of England where when the queen was Catholic, all the Protestants died. And when the queen was Protestant, all the Catholics died. So they said, hey, why don't we go somewhere else and we'll make a rule that the government isn't allowed to make those decisions. This, is, this comes out of what the Bible tells us. Paul's like, Pray that they'll leave you alone so that you can do what you're supposed to do without hindrance. The devil loves to make trouble and blame the church, doesn't he? <laughs> Several times in the book of Acts, we've seen that somebody has a, stages a riot or there's some big commotion, and then they want to blame the church for it. You know, Demetrius is like, see, they cause riots. Like, you're the one that started the riot. We didn't do any of that. So how are we as Christians going to be able to get through things like that? 
Look at what commended the church here. It was their conduct and their character in the city that was above reproach. The town clerk knew who they were. So, well, the Christians are causing trouble. He goes, Christians don't cause trouble. Christians aren't sacrilegious. They just don't worship our God. So you all can shut up and go home. 1 Peter 2, 15, uh, just 15, for time's sake. 1 Peter 2, 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, they're ignorant. They're foolish. They're trying to make trouble for us. Peter says, just live a good, godly life. And then when the moment comes, you're going to put them to silence. Because the Ephesian church had been living a godly lifestyle, when the accusation came, they had allies that they had won through being winsome, and they had justice on their side. When your flesh pitches a fit, or when Satan launches that counteroffensive against you, if you have not been preparing beforehand, you're going to be hung out to dry. There was no time now when they're in the arena with people shouting and screaming at them to try and make amends. This is where our spiritual disciplines come in, like prayer and reading your Bible, regular confession and repentance, constant attempts to try to correct your character. All that has to come first or you will fall. You want to have that reputation at work that even if there's people that don't like you, you are known by the people there as a good worker, as an honest person, as a kind person, somebody who loves everybody else, so that even if somebody tries to make trouble, it's going to reflect badly on them rather than reflecting badly on you. And then you'll be in a place where you don't have to defend yourself. You can let the reputation that God has given you and that you've created through the Spirit's help to speak for itself. If you train in bursts for a race or for a game or for a fight, it's not going to work. I have guys for baseball or whatever that would show up for practice kind of when they felt like it. And they'd work harder than anybody else when they were there. They might have a whole lot of talent. But the ones that were actually working hard day in and day out were the ones that were actually going to do well when the moment came. It's the same thing with the Spirit. You've got to be constantly disciplining yourself and walking with the Lord, not just in crisis mode. If you're only doing it in crisis mode, you're going to be in serious trouble. If the pitcher only ever throws a baseball during game time, he's not going to do very well. Same thing for you. If you only ever pray when things are bad, if you only ever tithe when things are bad, if you only ever read your Bible when things are bad, you're in some serious trouble. And that always comes. That battle comes. But if you can walk with the Lord leading up to those moments, the Lord will fight for you. You don't need to fight for yourself. There are times in the Bible where Paul will even say, don't ever defend yourself publicly. If somebody accuses you publicly, just let it go. Because if you've been walking with Christ, the truth will come out. The Lord takes good care of us. Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul would reference what happened here on that day. And he gives us a good way to close out our time today. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That seems like an appropriate thing to feel in that moment that we just read, right? Everybody chanting and screaming and your two best buddies are out there right in front of them all and they know where you live and, well, this is it. But he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul's like, I couldn't do a thing in that moment. So you know what I had to do? I had to trust God. Paul could have done nothing. Only God could save them. And I hope you can learn from their example. To bring it back to what we said at the very beginning, in the Battle of the Bulge, there in the snow, in the freezing cold, the American troops could do nothing. They did not have enough resources or ammunition or manpower to push back. All they could do was just hold the line. And they had to do it for more than a month in the freezing cold with shells landing around them every single day. And you know what? That was enough. Sometimes when you're walking with the Lord, it might be too hard to move forward, but if you can just hang on, that's enough. They refused offers of surrender until finally the American tanks came rolling in. And that was it. You do the same. When you're going through a, a spiritual attack, a spiritual counteroffensive, as we've been calling it, hold on. Because if you can endure to the end of that, your God, who is able to raise the dead, who's stronger than you and stronger than your enemy, will lead you through it. And the way you get ready for that is through daily faithful obedience to the Lord. Prepare for the crisis before the crisis comes.